Acts 2 describes the beginning of a special uh, ministry of the church, uh, the, the, the new work of Christ that is being entrusted to God's covenant people. And it's a very significant uh, period of time in the life of the church, uh, a period of time that, that actually begins what we call church history. Uh, Acts chapter 2, in a way, uh, describes this new era in the life of God's people, the church. It describes God's work. And brothers and sisters, 2,022 years later, after Jesus' birth, millennia after his death and resurrection, you and I are part of that ongoing history of God's dealing with his covenant people. Uh, so we're part, if you will, of the ongoing work of Jesus Christ through the Spirit. And uh, it's interesting to notice in church history some of the things that happened early on that were significant to us. In fact, it was only a few years after Luke wrote these words, recorded these words, only a few years after Peter preached these words, that the church became involved in disagreements about uh, the things that constitute Christian faith. Um, it's not surprising because one of the things we know about the church is it is made up of sinners. We are all sinners. We all have limited understanding. We, we all have our own uh, per personalities and our ways of processing information. Shouldn't surprise us if there were disagreements early on, and there were. Uh, there were disagreements about a whole lot of different aspects of the Christian life. And the two main focuses of disagreement, interestingly, had to do with Christ and who he was, and then God and who God is. And those disagreements formed a big chunk of Christian history for the first several hundred years. I mean, if you think about it, it's, again, it's no surprise because not only are we a bunch of sinners, but the gospel here in Acts 2 in Jerusalem was taken from the uh, crash, if you will, where most people understood the Old Testament. Most people understood the categories of thought that are embedded in the Old Testament. The gospel, in the course of the book of Acts, leaves the crash and goes to, well, as Luke says, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So not only are we dealing with the reality of sin, but we're also dealing with the reality of different cultures and different histories and different contexts, different ways of understanding God that are sort of embedded in the people who received the gospel. And so... Again, no surprise, there were these disagreements that emerged. Uh, there were people like the folks who were here on Pentecost morning who did know the Old Testament promises. And then, over the course of a generation or two, there would be many, many people who'd never heard of the Old Testament. They'd never heard of the God of the Old Testament covenant. They had no idea about what had been revealed to God's covenant people up to that point culture that was very diverse. It was, for one thing, very diverse linguistically. Uh, 
There were people who had not only different languages, but had very different cultures and, and very different ways of, of relating. And so over those first few hundred years, there were lots of discussions, lots of debates that became very intense. And early on, one of the ways of thinking about God that had very deep roots in paganism was an idea of what is called monarchianism. Monarchianism. Monarchianism was a way of thinking about God which was trying to fit it into the anti-pagan categories that had emerged among some Christians. They, they were turning their back on the idea of a polytheistic religion like they had in ancient Greece with all the different gods and goddesses and their ways of dealing with human beings. People who left that background, interestingly enough, they were drawn to the idea of the oneness of God, that there was one God. And so monarchians arose, and what they really latched onto and were very excited about was the idea that there was not a multitude of gods, but one God. And they saw that one God as a monarch, a king. And his oneness was extremely important to them. And that's the way they taught it in their churches and in their, in their different uh, communities. They, that was the gospel they shared. It was shaped by this realization that God is not polytheistic. God is one. But the thing was, they so emphasized the oneness of God that they they were confused about other aspects of the way God has revealed himself. And so this monarchian theology, monarchianism, it became known, divided into a couple of different camps. There, there were uh, camps that emphasized the uh, modalistic way of thinking of God, that, that uh, there was only one God, but he would reveal himself successively in different ways. But it was always the same one God, the same one person, who would reveal himself for in one instance as father, in another instance as son, in another instance as the Holy Spirit, but one God. And he revealed himself in different modes. Modalism, it was called. There was another way of thinking of God in this monarchy, monarchianism that emphasized, uh, based somehow on Christ, sort of an adoptionist way of thinking of God. That God was one, but he adopted Jesus. Whether it's at his baptism or at his ascension, at some point this man, God had adopted and brought him into his life. He wasn't part of God from eternity. He was brought in and given this unique dignity. Not quite God, but, but elevated above us. And that adoptionist tendency coupled with the modalistic tendency, well, that became the seedbed for all the earliest Christological heresies, understanding who God was. And it was fought out in church councils. It was fought out sometimes in actual fisticuffs, fighting about these things. Christians, because we're a bunch of sinners, can resort to crazy things when it comes to theological debates. And so this monarchial, monarchianism, became a focus of a lot of conflict. Well, it emerged from within that conflict um, a more balanced, and I will say much, much more biblical way of thinking about God. It was actually something that's embedded in the New Testament as it's embedded in the Old Testament. And it was this biblical understanding which 
over the centuries gave shape to what we today call the Trinity. The Trinity, the idea of a oneness, the unity of God, and at the same time a threeness within the one God, three persons. And that theological understanding carried the day in the church councils, and today, millennia later, you and I are heirs of that Trinitarian theology. So Trinity Sunday is a day when we open up our Bibles and we focus in a very specific way on this truth. And I want to tell you, this, this is an important thing to focus on regularly. Because, you know, the, the thing about heresies, they're, they're like a bad penny. Heresies don't go away. They morph. They look a little different. They're articulated in different ways. They appeal to us in different ways. But it is amazing to me how many of us who go to church every Sunday have been infected without realizing it by modalism, thinking of God in this kind of a, a way of one God who, who's sort of doing three different things and, and so we, we experience modes in God's life or the idea that, that Jesus is somehow brought into the Godhead in a way because he was such a wonderful teacher and a wonderful man who gave us a great example. And to this day, millennia later, Christians are still wrestling with these different mistaken ways of understanding God. So I'm very glad here at MetroCrest we take a Sunday to stop with our Bibles in our hands and look at what the Bible actually has to tell us about this. So that's what we're going to do for a few minutes this morning. If you look on page 8, you'll find the Bible reading. If you look on page 9 in the bulletin, you'll find the sermon notes. It might be helpful if you have these open in front of you. Uh, I, I want to start by looking at what Peter looks at in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Pause for a moment. At this first great Pentecost sermon, the content of Peter's sermon is shaped by the life of this man whom he knew personally, whom he had walked with for years, whom he had seen work miracles, whom he had heard teach whom he had seen raised from the dead. Peter knew this man of Nazareth. And he also knew that this man had been attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Because he was talking to a bunch of people, many of whom had also seen this man, Jesus of Nazareth. See, the, the realization of the church that God was doing something extraordinary is centered in this man. Centered in this man whom they knew and they had, they had heard, many, many of them had heard here in Jerusalem this man teach and do what he did. Verse 23, they knew that this Jesus had been delivered up, that he was crucified, that he was killed. Many of them knew the stories, verse 24, that God had raised him up. Now bear in mind, this was just weeks after the resurrection. About 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. 
So there were people there in that crowd for Pentecost, a great Jewish feast, who had been there for Passover, a great Jewish feast. So they'd heard all the stories about this Jesus being raised up, being loosed from the pangs of death. So that's where Peter begins his sermon. Having explained that all of this, verses uh, uh, 14 through 21, all of this is fulfillment of an Old Testament promise. Now that made sense to them. They knew the Old Testament. And so he begins this sermon by letting them know that everything he's saying is grounded in an Old Testament promise to the people of Israel. So he doesn't see himself as bringing a a, a brand new thing. He's bringing the fulfillment of an ancient thing with radical new implications. So, Peter begins talking about God the Son at work. Now, he doesn't say God the Son. He talks about Jesus the man. But in his sermon, in all of his references, including his quote in verse 25, looking to the Psalms, to uh, Psalm uh, 168. Here, Peter takes another Old Testament text, which talks about the Lord. That was the way the Hebrew people talked about God in Jesus' day. They didn't use the four Hebrew letters that were forbidden from being used publicly they were so afraid of taking that word in vain they didn't use it publicly what they said instead was the lord that's the way jesus spoke about the name of god in the old testament jesus himself also translated those letters as a word uh, that means in english the lord so peter chooses a passage that refers to the lord who is the god of the old covenant And he applies that passage to Jesus. He doesn't say God the Son. But he uses God language to describe Jesus. And what Peter is doing here is actually what we've seen in the Gospels. It's what Thomas said on that that encounter where Thomas met the resurrected Christ. Remember what he said? My Lord and my God. So Peter is simply here re-articulating what the church had come to see, that this man of Nazareth, this man Jesus, in some mysterious and wonderful way, was God. And so that's where he begins his sermon. Jesus of Nazareth. And he calls him the Lord. He talks about David. Of course, David was uh, greatly respected among the Jewish people. He was was the covenant king to whom God made covenant promises. God had promised David that a successor, one of his sons, would one day be placed on a throne. Of course, there were some in Jesus' day who thought that meant an earthly throne. And there were those who were expecting a a human king like David to be raised up, who'd lead an army to throw out those those terrible, awful Romans. But here we discover that this king was not a king who sat on an earthly throne like David's. 
this king, this son of David, would actually be greater than David. See, that, that didn't make a lot of sense in a Middle Eastern mindset. The son is not greater than the, than the, the one uh, who preceded him. It's, it couldn't be that the son of David would be, would be greater than David. Yet, yet that's exactly what happens down in verse 34. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, the, the reason he quotes that is because David, the great king, the, the great figure of God's covenant promises, this David says of the Lord, who is God, he says, God said to my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. And so precise was Peter's understanding of God's word that, that the fact that in this psalm, David, the great king, calls this other person Lord, it had significance because a great king couldn't call his son Lord unless his son had this special status that is in Christ, the, the Messiah, the promised one. And that God had said to this one, sit at my right hand. Of course, in the Middle Eastern mind, it was very clear what sit at my right hand means. It's, it's an acknowledgement of, of shared authority. It's, a, it's an acknowledgement of, of an equality to sit at the right hand. Well, that was, that was clear in that context. It was, it was giving this Lord this special recognition of who he was. And of course, that's what the ascension is, which, which had happened just 10 days earlier. Just 10 days earlier, the disciples had watched as Jesus was transitioned from this fallen world in which you and I live. He was, he was taken into the glory of God. And in some sense, they, they were able to experience that. And they, they saw that, that Jesus, this, this Jesus of Nazareth, assumed his place at God's right hand in glory. And so here is Peter, a fisherman, preaching this message to a group of people and, and sharing with them what he had no doubt learned from Jesus himself, during that, ten, that 40 days before the ascension, when Jesus, according to Luke, taught the apostles, taught the disciples what the Bible had said, what the Old Testament had said, and how it applied. And no doubt, in the course of that intensive Bible study, Jesus had pointed to this and other passages to say that all of this is pointing to who he is. And so, Peter's great Christ-centered sermon about Jesus, his life, his teaching, the wonders that he did, his death on the cross, his being raised to new life, all of this which we see in Jesus of Nazareth, Peter is telling us all of this is evidence that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is actually God in the person of Christ. He doesn't use the word Trinity. But he's describing something that drove the church toward the realization of who Jesus is and who God is. 
So that's where Peter begins. He talks about Christ. God the Son at work. He, he talks about Jesus who, who uh, worked wonders and, and gave signs uh, in their midst. Uh, he, he talks about Jesus who was delivered up. He talks in verse 24 about Jesus who uh, was raised. In verses 31 and through 33, he, he talks about Jesus who uh, was raised from, from the dead, that he was not abandoned to Hades, that he was raised up, that they were all witnesses of that. They had seen the resurrected Christ. They had been taught by him. And in verse 36, he draws us back again to the foot of the cross. Because the amazing thing is this, this God in flesh who worked wonders and had been raised to everlasting life, this Christ, Peter underscores again, had been crucified. This Christ in glory had died. He was both Lord, the Hebrew word, the way they spoke of God, he was both Lord and Christ, the anointed one. And so Peter simply does here what Christian preachers have done ever since. We look at the Gospels, we we listen to the words that have been written down by the power of the Holy Spirit and passed down to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what we meet, what we see, Who we meet, who we see in the Gospels is Jesus Christ, who is God enfleshed. And it was that realization that gripped their hearts and their minds, and it changed everything for them. Like Thomas, they saw Christ as Lord and God, and that transformed their whole lives. That's where the doctrine of the Trinity experientially for us begins. It begins with Christ. Because in Christ we're confronted with claims about himself and and aspects of his life which always lead us back to who God in the Old Testament has shown himself to be. So they couldn't get away from it. Wherever the Bible was preached, when when they actually went through the Bible and preached the New Testament as it came to be written down. Remember, at first it was all oral. They were simply repeating the stories they had heard. But in God's providence by the Holy Spirit, these words were eventually written down. And wherever the Bible was taken, that's what they taught. Jesus, the Son of God, and he was working. His death on the cross was his work. Underscored in verse 36, it was his work. And so Peter preached Christ. And in preaching Christ, well, we're, we're left with a whole bunch of questions, okay? So we have God the Son at work. You can't read the Gospels without seeing that and having to wrestle with that. But it also raised questions about who God was because, see, they had a doctrine of God. They believed strongly in the oneness of God. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, the word often used for God is a plural word. In in Genesis, God said, let us make man. There were little hints scattered through the Old Testament 
But what do you make of Jesus who is God who prays to God? What do you make about Jesus who was raised by God? Either either Jesus is some kind of divine schizophrenic with with different personalities going on within the the one uh, life experience he had, or you have to deal with how does all this fit together? And that's what Peter's getting at. If you look at... um, for instance, at, at uh, verse 22 uh, and verse 23, he, he had been attested by God. Verse 23 says that Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. See, as, as Peter's articulating the gospel, he, he's focusing on the work of Christ, the work of the man Jesus of Nazareth, but he can't focus on the work of the man Jesus of Nazareth without focusing on God the Father. He's already shown how Old Testament promises have been fulfilled in Christ. See, God was at work before Jesus was born in the crash in Bethlehem. God had been at work for, for hundreds, thousands of years. He, he'd been at work, according to Genesis 1, from the very beginning. He'd been planning. He had structured creation around this plan. And and according to the New Testament, the person of Christ, the, the, the person of the second person of God, had been a part of creation. John says that everything was created through him. See, can't read John's gospel with, Chapter 1, without seeing how this this man was there at the beginning of creation and everything was created through him. In fact, according to John 1.1, in the beginning, at the beginning of everything, he was already there and already had been. So God the Father was at work and In fact, even the crucifixion, according to Peter, even his being delivered up, according to Peter, was part of God and his definite plan, his foreknowledge. His being raised up was the work of God. So God the Son at work is immediately met with this God-inspired description of how God the Father had been at work all along with God the Son. They'd been working in, in unison, side by side. They'd, they'd been working together. You know, sometimes you get a description of the gospel which makes it sound like Jesus is trying to do something really nice to placate his angry father. <laughs> Every once in a while you'll, you'll hear a description of the gospel which sounds a little bit like that. Well, Peter makes it very plain that's not true. No, God the Son was fulfilling the plan of the all-knowing God the Father. God the Father, God the Son were at work in tandem. They were working together. Jesus was fulfilling, he was working out God the Father's eternal plans. And over and over again we read words about God at work, God's will being fulfilled. So God the the Son at work, God the Father at work. 
And then finally, Jesus promised that he would go to his father. That's the way he described his relationship with God. The father. I will go to my father and I will send the Holy Spirit. The father, at the request of God the Son and cooperative fulfillment of God's purposes, would send God the the Holy Spirit. And of course, Acts chapter 2 is in the context of a miraculous manifestation of the work of God the Holy Spirit. The whole chapter is about the Holy Spirit, which had poured out upon the disciples and had been transformed from humble fishermen to preachers who would stand up, in, stand up in front of thousands of people and articulate the gospel. That, that empowering spirit, well, the church had to deal with the spirit as well. I mean, many times the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Lord. In the Old Testament, that was a standard way of describing the, the, the sovereign work of the, of the uh, wonderful, awesome, holy God in speaking. His spirit would fall upon a prophet or uh, the Holy Spirit would speak words. And those words became scripture. So what you actually find here in Acts chapter 2 in this first Pentecost sermon is the first Trinitarian sermon. There are many references in in the Gospels. Jesus himself preached in a Trinitarian way. But here, the church echoes its master. In a short, summarized sermon, Peter communicated the Trinitarian gospel, which is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all at work in our experience of salvation. It's not Jesus trying to persuade the Father. It's not the Father making the Son. It's not the Holy Spirit stuck somewhere in the middle. No, this is the sovereign purpose of God working. So it's the the Holy Trinity at work here in Acts chapter 2. It's a wonderful quote from J.I. Packer, who's a man I very much respect, a great teacher, who said, The New Testament speaks of three personal agents. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together in the manner of a team to bring about salvation. Now, he's not describing the life of God as a team. You know, we get into trouble when we try to describe what the Bible doesn't describe. We're not really told about what happens within the mysterious life of God, and we get into trouble the minute we try to uh, explain what the Bible doesn't explain. We're curious creatures. We like to fill in the blank spaces. And so we ask questions about the life of God. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about the life of God, except that within the life of God, there is this eternal fellowship. There's, There's a bond within the life of God that you and I can only know about as it's revealed to us. We, we can't know what happens within the mysterious life of God. And all the great failures in Trinitarian theology, all the bad examples come from when we try to describe and explain God's own inner life. Can't be done. Apart from the fact that, that, that it is based on fellowship. This eternal giving, this eternal love. That's all we can really know about the life within God himself. 
But what we can know about and what Peter preaches about is God at work. See, we can see God at work. And, and sometimes and it's, when it's revealed to us, we can actually peel apart the different aspects of how each person of the Trinity is at work accomplishing the end of saving broken down sinners like you and me. See, it's Jesus who died on the cross. The Father did not die on the cross. Jesus died on the cross. In some mysterious sense, it was the Father who who designed and, and planned what would happen. It was Jesus submitting himself. And we see this in the gospel. He submits himself in love to the plans of his Father. And it's the Holy Spirit which takes all of that and miraculously, wonderfully applies it to your heart and my heart so that we can look at these amazing stories. We can read these amazing words and we can say, my Lord and my God, when our eyes behold the wonders of the work of the triune God. And I think the word team is not a bad word to describe that work, not the life, not a coach and a cheerleader and different parts of the team that way. But in terms of its work, there is this unity of purpose that we experience today. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit at work as one to save us and to save all those. That's what Joel promises us fulfillment of an Old Testament promise that God the Trinity working in this wonderful, mysterious unity of purpose is still saving those whom he wants to save. Still brings sinners to himself. Still opens hearts. Still brings people to worship Jesus. Well, That's the Trinity. It's not a dry academic doctrine. It's the glorious love of the perfect holy God working out his purpose in us.